One of the things that we forget living 2,000 plus years now on the other side of all of the cross and resurrection is we forget that our communion, what we do in communion, is rooted and based in the Old Testament event that you know as Passover. The Passover of the Jews is the roots of your modern communion. And since most of you were not raised in the Jewish tradition, <laughs> I doubt if, if, if anyone was, I, I'd be shocked down here in the Deep South, uh, maybe in New York or Florida perhaps, but uh, since most of you were not raised in a Jewish traditional home, what that means is that we're at a disadvantage. Uh, we are a mixed race people living in a contemporary era thousands of years removed from something that we need to understand. And so we're at a little bit of a disadvantage because we don't have a tight connection to those Jewish roots. All of the original Christians were Jewish. And so the transition from Passover to communion, although shocking, as you may see in a minute, it was much easier uh, for them because they had this foundation of what Passover was all about. Now, I, I would just see if I can illustrate in many different ways and talk in some simple language to you this morning. Uh, we are kind of like people who have never seen a birthday party. Now, don't think that's shocking because I do a lot of ministry in the jungles of Asia and in the far remote villages of India many times. Not once, but many times I have sat with the village elders and I have sat with men and women of antiquity and had tea and got to know them and I've said to them, Auntie, how old are you? Uncle, how old are you? And the answers have come back like this. Well, since we've been counting, I'm 103. But I was alive a long time before we started counting. And I make some inquiries and here's what I discover. In some places in the world, people don't know what their birth dates are. There are no written records anywhere. The baby came, no one wrote down the date. They know, you know, maybe we think we know it so many harvests ago it was in the spring or the fall, or but we don't know the birth date. And birthday, birthday celebrations are unheard of in some places. And there are no birth certificates. No one's there recording anything with the county clerk. You say, well, at the hospital, don't they? There is no hospital. There is a, there is a midwife or a neighbor there helping you. And sometimes you're delivering your own baby. It's a totally different world. And so, we're, we're, I want you to just imagine now. Imagine that you're that person living in this village. You know nothing of birthday celebrations. You don't even know your own birthday. You're not even sure how old you are. And, and we invite you to come over and visit us here in Texas. You're, you're invited... Uh, uh, on a weekend like this, over to the Swearingen home here in Fort Worth, Texas. They're celebrating the birthday of Olivia. 
uh, she turned three yesterday, had a birthday party. And so the, the swearings invite you over and say, hey, I'm having Livy's birthday party. We know you guys are from a whole other side of the world. We want you to come and experience some, some of our American culture. You come into the room and there are balloons everywhere. Over here on the table is this beautifully elaborate princess birthday cake. Uh, someone, some family member is over there placing three candles on top of the cake. Everyone is uh, given a pointed hat with a little elastic band under the chin when they arrive. Uh, people have noisemakers in their hands and funny little horns to blow. And kids are being given little, little gift bags. And, and since you've never been to a birthday party, you would have a million questions. But one of the most fundamental would be this, Bobby. Why is someone trying to set the cake on fire? Oh, what, what is that all about? And, and why are we wearing these pointed hats? And why is that little girl over there ripping open all of those parcels and, and, and giggling and, and, and everybody's so excited? And I would say to you, well, it's Olivia's birthday. And you would reply, wow, she came out big. No, 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 no. She's three. She wasn't born today. She's three years old. She was born three years ago today. See the three candles on the cake signify which birthday we're celebrating. You would say, well, if she was born three years ago, why are we only celebrating now? Shouldn't we have had this party three years ago? And I would say to you, no, we have this party every year on this date. It's a way that we say to Olivia, you're special. You would say, well, why the balloons and all the decorations? And, and I would say to you, well, we want this day to be distinguished in our family as different from all other days. Because in our family, this day holds special significance. And I would probably, after a while of answering your questions, just hand you a plate and say, eat some cake. And just enjoy uh, and come along for, for the ride. Now, here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine life with no parties. Now, I grew up in a tradition that did not want anybody to have any fun. And, and now I know, looking back at that tradition, that that clearly is not right. Because that is not who Jesus was, and that is not what's happening in the Bible. These people are celebrating feasts and festivals, and they're having parties, and they're having a great time together. And that's very clear from the Scripture. But... If you could imagine life with no parties, that would be a dull life indeed. Because it's celebrations that bring hope and joy into our lives. It's special days and celebrations like this that add color and depth to our existence. You know, Monday through Friday can get a little gray for us. What are you doing? I'm going to work. What are you doing? I'm going to school. What are you doing? I'm stuck in traffic. And Monday to Friday can get a little gray, you know, the routine that we get into. And sometimes you need a special day to add some color and add some dimension to your life. Parties, like a birthday party, are designed to join our past with our present. When were you born? Past. How old are you now? Present. 
And sometimes when we sing songs, we'll say at the end, dot, 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 and many more. They also point us to the future. So special days have a way of linking our history, past, present, and often future. I'll tell you what else parties do. Parties are a time when family comes together. Whether it's Christmas, it's Easter, it's Thanksgiving, it's Fourth of July. Now these are American contexts for sure. There are certain seasons when we just, it's default. You don't have to ask your family, are we going to have a turkey and get together? Man, it's Thanksgiving, what do you think we're doing? You know, uh, you don't have to ask if we're having a pool party. It's Independence Day, It's, it's July, we're having a party, you know. Those things are just a part of our culture and part of our existence because we need special days to bring family together. We need special days to bring friends together where everybody at the party is unified by love. When family and friends come together, we are unified by love. Now, in every country, you, you know this already, that it, but in every country, people have different traditions different cultural practices, but what's universally true across the entire world is that humans have a desire to make someday special. Uh, I know this weekend, uh, you know, uh, Ezekiel's preaching in a certain remote place, I'll give you this report next week, and he's like, you know, uh, Pastor, I'm sorry, I only led 15 people to Christ tonight uh, because we couldn't get the whole crowd there because it's holy festival. Uh, this is where they throw color on you in India. You know, if you've seen the, the, uh, any of those movies about that, uh, it's a big celebration and it's full of life and full of color and full of joy and, and full, of, full of meaning. Although different countries have different traditions, what's universal is that people love to have special days where people who are made for each other and people who belong together like we belong together in this room want to get together and do something special together, and we want to celebrate the good things of life. We want to celebrate the best that God has given us. And, and the Hebrew writer, the, whoever the pastor is preaching the Hebrew sermon, knows this, and he's about to mention how Moses, and Moses' faith particularly, played a part in one of the longest-running parties in human history. Now, bear with me in the next five or so minutes, because I need to read you several portions of Scripture that will explain. First, let's go to Hebrews and listen to what the writer of Hebrews is saying about Moses' faith. Hebrews eleven twenty four. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, now, do you remember last week he was a baby in a basket, sent across the Nile, rescued by the princess, nursed by his own mother, sent back to the palace where he was educated as an Egyptian Dot, 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 and he grew up, okay? Let me fast forward the story for sake of time. He grew into a mighty general and was the heir to the throne. He was in line to be this golden boy, this golden prince that was was in line for the throne of Egypt. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, And instead, now he's making his own choices. He chose to be mistreated. I feel like I'd just stop preaching a little mini-sermon right there if I had the time. That's a choice said no one ever. (laughs) 
But here it is in the Scripture. Moses, we can hand you the, the, the keys to the country of Egypt, or you can choose your, your former, you, you know, your real blood heritage, and you can be a Jew, and you can be a slave, and you can suffer. Let me see what I would do. Ferrari mud pit. Uh, Paulus, you know, uh, thatch hut. Uh, uh, servants, I am the servant. You know, he's just, th- and here's what he chose. He chose to suffer with the people of God rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 26, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking which direction? That's important. He's looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, and he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Who did he see? He saw God. God was there. Now, burning bush, we can talk more about that later, but he, he, he saw that there was something bigger in play than materialism, popularity, how many followers do you have, how many people do you influence, how many square feet do you live in, how many cars are in the, how many car garage. He saw something bigger in play here, okay? And so he saw God and it affected the decisions he made about his own life. 28, by faith, he kept the Passover. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And the application of blood. So that the destroyer of the firstborn would not be able to touch the firstborn of Israel. Now, let me just summarize the story. Moses, the young prince, grows to be a great Egyptian general. Uh, There are summaries of his life uh, that you can find. Perhaps one of the most succinct and clear is the sermon that Stephen preached in Acts chapter 7 right before they stoned Stephen. Stephen gives a big historical sweeping sermon right before they kill him. I want to go to Stephen's sermon and you'll get the whole Moses story in like two minutes. Here we go. Acts 7 verse 22. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and in action. And when Moses was 40 years old, now he's the prince of Egypt, he decided to visit his own people, the slaves, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought, that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. And he tried to, hey, calm down, let's reconcile this. Men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Oh, the crime is not hidden. The crime is known. And when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian out into the wilderness where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Verse 30. And after 40 years, he's 80 now. After forty years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. 
And when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. And he went to get a close, over to get a closer look, and he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, here's what's important about these Old Testament characters. God wants a people. God made a people. And God chose Abraham and Sarah to be the people. And that blessing, that covenant relationship passes to their children, Isaac, Jacob, and on down to the twelve tribes and over to the whole nation of Israel. And you've seen that now laid out week by week here in this series of sermons. God is saying to Moses, the same God that called Abraham is the God speaking to you. And just like Abraham was my people, Moses, you're my people, and those slaves being mistreated in Egypt, that, that those people are my people. And Moses trembled. He, he, he didn't even, he was so fearful he didn't dare look. Verse 33, then the Lord said, take off your sandals, for the place you're standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I just want you to have some hope right here. So often we think, well, God just doesn't see what's happening. Yes, He does. He's watching His people, trust me. And He is with His people. And I have heard their groaning. He hears your prayers. He hears your cries. And I have come down to set them free. Now, Moses, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses. Stephen says, that the people rejected with the words, who made you a ruler over us? Isn't that funny? When Moses tried to step in 40 years ago, they said, we, we don't need you. Some snotty-nosed Egyptian trying to be our... You, you, what are you going to do? Kill us? Anyway, they rejected Moses. Now God has sent Moses right back to God's people. He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God Himself. Now, you've got the whole story in, a, in Cliff Notes right there. So now Moses is going down from Sinai, and he's going to head back to Pharaoh. He's going into Egypt, and what's his message to Pharaoh? God has appeared to me, and God says to you, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I don't know your God. Pound sand. See ya. Drop dead. Get out of here. And, and, and now the contention begins to build and rise between Pharaoh and Moses to the point, there's going to come a point where Pharaoh says, Moses, if you come in here again and say, let my people go, the next time I see you, I'll kill you. I mean, it's going to get really tense in the story. And I would admonish you to go over to the book of Exodus chapter 1 and just start reading. The whole story will come to life for you. But Moses says over and over, God says, let my people go. Let God's people go that we may go to Sinai and worship our Lord in the wilderness. And Pharaoh refuses to let them go. So here's the short story. God sends ten plagues upon Egypt. Any of this sounding familiar to you? God sends ten plagues. And all ten plagues are direct assaults by Almighty God upon the gods of Egypt. It's not just a, you know, random. It's a very precise Precision strikes against Egypt. All ten plagues are judgments against Egyptian gods and the Egyptian people. For example, 
you Egyptians worship the Nile as a god? Watch this. I'll just turn the Nile into a giant blood clot. Just a big stinking gelatinous mess of gooey. Just, just, I'll just turn it to blood. I'll just pollute what you call a god. You look to the, the Nile for fertility and for life. How about I'll just kill the Nile? Ecological disaster. But God will clear it up later. Don't worry. He's the creator. He can fix it all. You worship frogs? Well, how cool is that? How about I give you a few billion of them? Frogs in the pantry, frogs in the washer, frogs in the dryer, frogs in your bed, frogs in your makeup drawer, frogs in the bathtub, frogs in the closet, frogs in your shoes. Have you ever been around Texas somewhere when we get the June bug infestation every year? Or we get the cricket infestation every year and you're walking up to a storefront that's got lights outside and as you walk across the sidewalk, it's like... <laughs> you're just crunching them and mashing them and, and, and after a few days... If they don't sweep all of that up, it just stinks and rots and there's a thousand dead crickets everywhere. Can you imagine what it was like nationwide when something like this happened? He's like, okay, you, you like frogs, I, I give you a few billion of them. You, can just, you and your gods can get really cozy for a few days. Oh, you worship the sun? How about I just turn the lights off for a few days? And there was darkness over Egypt for three days. And I could just go on and on and on, but I don't have time this morning. God's dismantling their petty little idol gods and their false beliefs. And he's judging Egypt until finally you come to Exodus chapter 12. And Pharaoh says to Moses, Moses, if you show up again, I'm just going to kill you. I don't want to see your face ever again on this earth or you're a dead man. And Moses says, okay, here we go. And on Exodus chapter 12, God says, I'm going to send the last plague, and I'm telling you after this happens, they will surely let you go. And so God calls Moses aside in Exodus 12, and God says to Moses, Moses, tonight is freedom night. Are you ready? Tell everybody to pack their go bags. We're going at sunrise in the morning. Tell everybody tonight is Independence Day. This will be your July the 4th. I'm declaring independence right now and we'll work it out in the next few hours. But I've got some directions for you because tomorrow you will be a free people. God will deliver you with a strong hand. God's people will be free. The exodus will be underway. The exile will be over. And you, my people, will come to Sinai and you will gather before me and you will worship me. But tonight, first, the Passover. Now, the Passover is a freedom meal. I want to take you now. It's 1440 B.C., 1400 years before Christ. I'm reading from Exodus chapter number 12. This is the first Passover. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month shall be for you the first month, the first month of your year. In other words, God said not only is it Independence Day, for your calendar, this is January 1st. Just We're going to start a whole new calendar right now. We're just starting over. I'm going to liberate you, and this will be day one of the birth of Israel. Verse 3, tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Verse 7, then they are to take the blood, and they are to put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. The same night they are to eat the meat roasted over fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. 
chapter 12, verse 11, this is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, you will eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Uh, Let me see if I can put that into English, what's happening right there. He's saying, I want you to eat this uh, with your running shoes on. I, I, want you to, I want you to have your belt girded as if, as if the starting gun went off. You could just grab your backpack and out the door and, and, and be ready to go in a moment's notice. Uh, verse 12, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and I will strike down the firstborn of both people and animals and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. And the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. Famous line coming up. Get ready. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No death can touch that house. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day that you are to commemorate. For generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord and a lasting ordinance. God says, until I say otherwise, this date, every year, we're going to have a party. We're going to have an Independence Day Freedom Party. I want you to commemorate this day because this is the day the exodus ended, exile was over, and God's people were free. Now let's see how it played out. Verse 29. And at midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. And during the night... Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. And Pharaoh said to Moses, Up! We wouldn't say it that way in English. We'd say, Out! We would say, Get! Up, he said. Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go and worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks, take your herds, take the gold, take the silver, take whatever you want to take, and don't let the door hit you on the way out. And God's people are now free. Now this is a huge, huge deal in the Scripture. And before I go any further in the sermon, I want to give you one more footnote to this story. It comes from the next chapter. So God led the people... In the morning, here they go, they're free, out they go. God led the people around by the desert toward the road to the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. They went out armed as an armed nation. 600,000 men besides women and children, they went out as an army. They went out as a nation. And God's leading them out, verse 19, and Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Why? Do you remember from a few weeks ago why? 
Because when Joseph died, Joseph said, you promise me that when, when you guys leave, and you will surely leave this place, that you will not bury me in Egypt. You're going to take me to the promised land with you. And they did. And so they went up out of Egypt carrying a mummy and a sarcophagus. That was the old prime minister, which was a son of Jacob named Joseph. And out they went, and they went out as God's free people. Now, that's Passover. And the Freedom Party, called Passover, was held every year at the same time, in the same way, by the same people of God. Now, just for sake of time, I've got to fast forward the story. Let me fast forward about 1,200 years to the Freedom Party, and let's just park ourselves somewhere before Jesus. How about 200 B.C.? Let us fast forward the story just before the opening of the New Testament, 200 B.C., before Christ comes, we're in a little Jewish quarter. In the old cities, they divide you by population. Muslim quarter, Jewish quarter, the Greek quarter, Roman quarter. And we're in the Jewish quarter of a small town in Turkey. It's freedom night. So the Jews are gathered and they're about to celebrate Passover in their homes. They call it Pesach. That's the P-E-S-A-C-H. They're about to observe Pesach. The table is set with lamb, bread, wine, herbs. They gather around the table, and as they gather around the table, an old man begins to tell a story from Exodus chapter number 12. And the story the old man is telling is that way back 1,200 years ago, when the Jews, our parents, were slaves in Egypt, and then he starts telling the story. But it's funny because everybody in the room seems to already know the story. And at some point in the Passover celebration, there's a speaking part for the youngest child in the room. And so at some point in the Passover story, the child who has the speaking part stands up and says, quote, But why is this night different from all other nights? Well, I'm glad you asked. And now they launch into the story and they tell about what God did on the Passover night and why this night is truly different. This is the night that God came down and rescued His people and we are those same people. But how can you be those same people? You're not that old. That was 1,200 years ago. Don't you mean that God's people were your great-great-great-great-grandparents? And the old man says, yes, but it's kind of like a birthday party. And we are those same people. Because we are not just us. We are also them. Now, I think it's important because the modern Christians have lost this. You, we seem to not want to have anything to do with our European Christian forefathers. We don't like their robes. We don't like their stuffiness. We don't like their liturgy. We don't like their high church. We, we don't like the ways of the old ways of, of our European forefathers who brought us this Christianity. But I want you to take something from the Jewish book for just a moment. Because when the Jews observe Passover... They clearly are linking themselves to those original people. It's not just we this morning that are going to take communion. God's people are going to take communion here this morning. 
And God's people are not just we. God's people are also them. There's something bigger in play here than just we. A big, united people of God. And so the old man would say tonight, everywhere in the world, God's people are eating this exact same meal. Anywhere in the world you go tonight into a Jewish home, you know what's happening? There's lamb on the table. There's bitter herbs on the table. There's wine on the table. There's bread on the table. They're reading the same words out of Exodus chapter. Anywhere in the world you go tonight, the people of God are doing this thing. To me, that's just way cool. Let's fast forward another 200 years. Well, now we're with Jesus Christ and the disciples. The new Jesus meal happened around 30 A.D. Now, maybe at Easter or another time I can talk more about this, but Jesus clearly chose Passover as the backdrop for His death. Whatever you want to debate about, this is not debatable. Jesus has orchestrated the events to where the whole thing will come to its Big moment, right at the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. He set this in motion. He got on that donkey and rode into town while everybody said, here is the king. Behold, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in. Here is our king. He set all of this in motion for Passover on purpose. He wanted Passover to be the backdrop for everything that was about to happen. So just in your mind, think about this. Jesus chose the freedom party as the backdrop for what He was about to do on Calvary and His resurrection from the tomb. Jesus, you'll remember, told His disciples in the lead up, He said, I want a couple of you to go into Jerusalem and there you're going to meet a man and you're going to ask for the upper room and you're going to get the supplies ready. That means you're going to get the lamb and the bread and the herbs and, and, and the wine and, 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 the, and the dish. You're going to get everything set up where we can go together as a one family, one people and go eat the Passover. Let me fast forward. They're in the upper room. It's the night. The night that you've read about in the New Testament. They are not sitting at tables and chairs as da Vinci portrayed in the Last Supper. That's a very Europeanized portrait. Uh, I was studying it a little bit uh, in the lead up to this sermon and it's a very, it's very Anglo-white. You know, uh, people there gathered in a very, you see the mountains in the background, those are not Jewish mountains and the building is not a Jewish building and it's very Venice or something. Anyway, uh, uh, it, but it's a moving picture because there they all are at the table. Now, in reality, uh, you know, slaves stand and common people all sat in chairs, but it was the elite who reclined, uh, the free people who reclined. And so they reclined at this meal. It's like a low table and you're sitting, it's a little more Japanese style. You're sitting down on your backside and there's pillows everywhere and you're laying over on the pillow. It's not, we ought to try eating that way here in America. You know, low table, everybody take your shoes off and just lay around by the table and just shovel it in, you know, and you get fat and you just lay over and take a nap for a few minutes, wake back up, eat, a, eat another course, and are y'all practicing that already? You seem to find that funny. You're, murdos are, oh, you think that's a good idea. Okay, we'll saw, we'll get a saw, we'll saw the legs off your table this week. All right, so Jesus has all the disciples gathered around the table, 
And they see the, the food there. It's, it's the food they expect to see. They all recognize. There's the unleavened bread. There's the bitter herbs. There's the roasted lamb. And there's plenty of wine. That's a Passover meal. Uh, in the Passover meal, one of the things that really changed my mind about alcohol, you know I grew up in a tradition of absolutely no alcohol. One of the things that's really, really made me do a backtrack on that is the more I get integrated into the old Jewish culture, that's just not the way it was. Did you know that in the Passover meal, everybody drinks four cups of wine? I, I know you don't believe me. You Google it this afternoon, come back and apologize next Sunday. Um, <laughs> I'll be at the back and you just say, Pastor, I'm sorry, I doubted you. Yeah, everybody, you're going to drink four cups of wine in the Passover meal. And so there's plenty of wine there. And it's a freedom party. This is not a, it's a freedom party. <laughs> it's a celebration about we were slaves and God set us free and the exile is over and we are God's people. But see, they were still conquered by nations after Egypt. Assyria and Babylon and, and, and Medo-Persia and the Greeks and then the Romans. They were an often conquered people. And so the prophets spoke about a time that would come. The thing that Passover really pointed to. A big liberation that would come when God would finally set them free for good. But this is a celebration. It's a big freedom party. And they got ready for Jesus to say the words. Of course, he's going to be the one speaking. He's the honored person here. And he's going to say the words. And everybody knew the words by heart. They're the words that they had heard said by their grandpa and their dad all their lives. They're words that, that they had constantly lived with. It was a part of their culture. And they were just waiting because they just knew Jesus was about to say, this is the bread of our fathers when we came out of Egypt. This is the cup of life, the cup of freedom. But when Jesus got ready to speak in the upper room that night, He did not say the old words. Instead, Jesus said some new words. Now, they've well drunk by now. and Maybe they're thinking, wait, maybe I've had too much wine. Maybe I didn't hear exactly that correctly. Did you hear what I just heard? Jesus said something, He went completely off script. He did not say, this is the bread of our fathers, this is the cup of freedom. He did not say any of that. Instead, maybe I'm wrong, but I thought Jesus just said, take this bread and eat it because this is My body which is given for you. And as you do this tonight and forever, do it in remembrance of Me. They're looking around the room and saying, this isn't the script. This isn't the script for Passover. What is He saying right now? Then the cup came around. And Jesus said, now drink you all of it. Because this is My blood in the new covenant. And it is shed for the remission of sins. So that sins may be forgiven. Wait, those are not the words that you say in a Passover ceremony. What is He saying? This is My blood? This is My body? Sins are about to be forgiven? The new covenant is upon us? Now they knew that the prophets had spoken, Jeremiah chapter number 31, I think it's verse 31, 31, 31. In Jeremiah they knew the prophets had spoken of a new covenant with God's people. That it would be a time when God would forgive sins once for all. And He would once for all give freedom to all of His people. 
And that's the big thing that Passover was pointing forward to. But it seemed in the moment of the upper room that Jesus was telling His disciples, the time is now. Not one day God will make a new covenant. The, t- the time is a now. This moment that you drink the cup and eat the bread tonight, this is the moment. The long-awaited rescue, the long-awaited future that everyone has been looking for, it's happening right now. But they are sleepy with wine. They go out to the garden. And in a few minutes, the arrest, the trial, the cross, the burial, it happens, it happened like a whirlwind in those last few hours. The events happened so quickly they could not sort it out. It was moving too fast. All they knew to do was run and hide until they could hunker down and try to make some sense of how the events were playing out. And it took them a few days to figure out exactly what was happening. But then on Sunday morning, they got it all figured out. Because on Sunday morning, they realized that something had happened and whatever it was, the world would never be the same again. Because the new meal was for a new family. That's what Jesus was saying. Let's fast forward our story about 26 years. And let's go back to a small town in Turkey. A little town named Colossae. It's the first day of the week. The followers of Jesus now are gathering at Philemon's house. Probably the big house down there near the end of the street. Uh, I think Epaphras was the first one who got it all started here in Colossae. You see, Epaphras met a man named Paul. And Paul told Epaphras a story that would change his life. It's a story we've all heard by now. You see, there's 35 of us now gathering on this first day of the week. We've been up very early this morning. Some will have to go to work today because they are slaves. We are men, we are women, we are young people, we are Greeks, we are Romans, we are Turks, we are Israelites. We're a mixed group of people meeting together on the first day of the week and somehow we've become a single family. We now share things. We now take it upon ourselves that it's our duty to care for the other people in our group. Whether they are Jews or Gentiles, male or female, slave or free, in our little group we treat everybody as if they were our own brothers and sisters. We don't go to the old temples anymore. We don't go down where the idols are anymore. Instead, no, wherever we gather together, we know that God is living in our midst in that moment. And when you hear the story that we've heard, it does something to you. Somehow when you hear the story, it warms your heart and it creates emotions in you that you can't explain. And ultimately that story moves you to make decisions. And if you believe the story, then it takes your life in a whole new direction. And what we've discovered now is you actually become part 
of the story. Epaphras told us the story of a Jew named Jesus. Many of the Jews believed that this Jesus was the rightful king of Israel, their Messiah. But the Romans got wind that there was a rival king, and they betrayed him, and they sold him out, and they crucified Jesus. That's what they do to rebel kings. And we thought that would be the end of the story that they were telling us, but that was only the beginning of the story, because we discovered that on the first day of the week, the same Jesus was alive again, meeting with his people, He was alive, but in a very new sort of way that none of us can quite explain. And we understand now that Jesus has come to give us that same type of new life through Himself. It's almost like we were living in this blurry black and white and gray world, and all of a sudden, now that we've said yes to the story and yes to Jesus, it's like everything has come into color and high definition and into focus. Now, we're gathering here this Sunday morning to celebrate our new family in Christ. And when we gather together, we have a special celebration. The new meal is a thank you party. You see, when Jesus was alive walking this earth with His disciples, He announced that the kingdom of God was bursting into the present moment. The thing everyone had been looking for had arrived with Jesus Christ. The problem was, when Jesus said the kingdom is here, it didn't look like what people expected it to look like. They thought, well, if you're the king, you'll go seize the throne from Rome and crush the armies and all of this. Because it didn't look like what they expected it to look like, they couldn't, I guess, wrap their minds around it. But Jesus is saying, no, the kingdom is here And on Easter Sunday morning, it became very clear that this is what God had intended all along because on Easter Sunday morning, this is where Christianity really began. Ladies and gentlemen, right now, we are in the kingdom of God. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the kingdom is here. And if you put your faith in Christ, you are in the kingdom of God. And He has inhabited your being in the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. You have become a living temple of Almighty God. You are special because now you've reassumed the ancient vocation of Adam and Eve. Now you are living temples of God where you're reflecting God to this world and reflecting the world's glory back to God. You've assumed the human vocation. And when we take communion this morning, all of the past and the present and even the future come together in this one act of communion. What Christians do today when they eat the bread and drink the wine is the central act of Christianity. It links us. We are not just us, we are also them. It links us this morning to that Colossae church in Turkey. What we do this morning links us to that Jerusalem church that Jesus began. 
What we do this morning links us to what the Rock of Ages Church did in Romania today. What we do this morning links us to what they did in India today. Do you understand? It's bigger than just us. We are God's people. But we are bigger than what's in this room. And we are connected together. Now, let me deal with one thing and we'll be ready for our communion. It's been called many different things. And I don't want you to get hung up on terminology. Uh, in the book of Acts, the Christians called this breaking bread. And it's clear they did it once a week at a minimum. Maybe more than once a week. It says daily they went together from house to house breaking bread. So they were very communion minded in the first uh, century for sure. And in the first church. Uh, it's, it's changed a little over time. We don't have a full meal right now like they may have had all the way up through the book of First, first Corinthians at least. Uh, that gets expensive. Uh, it gets hard to coordinate. Who's going to bring what? Uh, how, how much are you going to eat? Are drinks included? It, when I come to church on communion Sunday, is it an all-inclusive? Uh, if we're poor, does that mean if we didn't contribute anything, then we can't participate? And it causes all kinds of divisions. So over time, it morphed from a meal meal to what we're going to do here this morning. It's clear that the first church called it breaking of bread. The Corinthian church called it by a completely different word. Uh, they use the Greek word for sharing, which is also translated as communion. So the, Greek, uh, the, the Corinthians called this taking communion. Most Christians in the world today call it a thank you meal. Uh, they use the Greek word eucharisto, and they call this the Eucharist. And the Eucharist is the most common word used globally this morning for what is about to happen right here. Some later Christians came along and they called it the Lord's Supper. Now, that seems weird because supper denotes what we're going to do tonight. That's an evening meal to us. And the first one was at Passover and the one in the upper room was an evening meal. But Christianity moved it to a Sunday morning gathering like this where most of the congregation could participate. Remember, you have lots of slaves Christians living in foreign cultures, they got up very early before their masters were even up, broke bread, and then went to do their duties. Does that make sense? Moved to an early morning thing. But anyway, some Christians call it the Lord's Supper. That's fine. And then a new expression emerged in Christianity when Christianity finally had made it to Rome. Uh, the Romans spoke the Latin language. And so when they did this celebration in the Latin language... Uh, they would close the, the celebration with, go, go, you are sent out, which is a great way to end the celebration. Maybe I need to script that right into ours at some point. And what it means is those who have partaken of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are now equipped to go and take uh, the gospel to the world. They are now equipped to, it's almost like saying, go and make disciples. Go, you are sent out. The Latin phrase for that is ite missa est. Ite missa est. Go now, you are sent out. The one word summary for ite missa est is the mass. So if I said the mass, you would understand. I, I'm not talking about anything that's heretical. I'm just saying 
what we're about to do goes by a lot of different names. You can call it the Lord's Supper. You can call it communion. You can call it the Eucharist. You can call it the Mass. You can call it whatever you want to call it, as long as you know what you're doing. Do you know what Passover's about? Are we there? It's freedom celebration. Do you know what the Lord's Supper is about? Jesus took the freedom celebration, and Jesus said, Hey, the kids are coming in to take communion. Josh, come on in, kids. Hang out with us for a while. Uh, so, uh, when Jesus got ready to do something new, he took the old Passover meal, and he said, Now I'm going to update it, because it's no longer biological children of Abraham. Now we are Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, male and female. We are a mixed up race of people here in America. We don't even know what our lineage is. Are we free to be a part of the family of God as well? Yes, because by faith you are all children of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you are now God's family. You are God's people. That's why the Passover matters to you. And that's why the Lord's Supper matters to you. What we're about to do, the new meal, is a covenant renewal party, if you would. Every time we take communion, it's like us saying to God, I'd like to renew my vows. God, have I told you how much I love you lately? God, have I told you how much you mean to me? Jesus, have I told you lately how much your sacrifice on the cross means to me? I can never repay you. I love you so much. But because you loved me first. This is what we're about to do. It is a covenant renewal ceremony. What's clear this morning is that the kingdom of God is not some distant thing we're waiting for. It's not some out there in the sky thing we're hoping to go off and encounter. God's kingdom is here right now, this morning, in this room. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul told the Corinthians about this moment. For whenever you eat and drink, you do show, you do proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This has its roots in the Passover past. It has its roots in the upper room of Jerusalem 30 A.D. past. It has its roots in 2,000 years of Christianity passed down to you. But what we do this morning is pointing to a future that is not even fully realized yet. Communion holds together past, present, and future. The great future when God's world will be remade and our loved ones who have died will be resurrected, and we will all be together under the loving rule of a King Jesus. Past, present, and future, all connected in one covenant renewal expression. I would remind you too that remembering is not just thinking back. When Jesus said remember, He's not just saying, yeah, that happened way back there. Acknowledge that. No, what he's saying, remembering is to take the past and bring it back into your present and make it a living, real part of your present reality. When you take communion, the Lord is real in this room. He is here with His people. And God is with you for your entire journey going forward. The resurrection in particular 
is already a foretaste of the new world that God's going to make. Jesus is called the first fruits. He's the prototype for all of us now. This is what you can expect in the future. And let me just say one thing before we wrap. You know, in Paul's writings, the Christian promised land is not the Middle East. The Christian's promised land is the entire renewed planet Earth. You get the whole world when this is done. You see, if we die before that time, we go to heaven. That means to go into God's dimension of existence. But the long-term hope is not that we all fly away to heaven. The long-term hope that we have is that heaven and earth will join. The earth will be renewed. Our loved ones who have passed into that dimension will be resurrected. And we which are alive and remain will be transformed as well. And we'll be renewed people on a renewed planet. The book of Revelation says, Behold, I make all things new that's your future and we go forward from here today strengthened with that hope because we are held in love between God's past and God's promised future and God's present gift to you is that he's going to be with you for your whole journey you will never be alone Paul said when you do this you announce the Lord's death until he returns the very eating of this meal and the drinking of this cup says to the evil forces of this world you have lost and our jesus our king has won jesus stood in the middle of history and he stretched out one arm to the past and he stretched out one arm to the future And hanging on the cross, he held the past, present, and future all together in one moment. And at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, and when we eat of the table that are the body and blood of Jesus Christ, it all goes back to those moments of the upper room, Calvary, and the empty tomb. And we recall his one and only sacrifice, the moment that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And we acknowledge this morning that the church is very much alive 2,000 years later because of the nourishment of Jesus Christ. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. A moment of prayer. We'll take communion. Father, we bow before you. Lord, we've heard a lot this morning about uh, the roots of communion. Lord, you've uh, opened our hearts and our eyes to what Passover was, what it meant to your people for thousands of years. And Lord, how you stunned the world. I bet that was quite a moment, Lord, when they expected you to say one thing and instead you said something completely different. Very much like you, though. I bet they were shocked when you said, This is my body which is broken for you. I bet they were further stunned when you said, This is my blood and the new covenant is right now. All that your people had waited for, you brought the future right into their present. 
God, this morning we believe that you are here with us by faith. Moses kept the Passover. And Lord, we want to say to you this morning, your people gathered in this place by faith are going to take communion this morning. We believe you're here. We believe we are your people. Gather as we eat this, let us eat with clean hands and a pure heart. Father, wash us and cleanse us. Lord, make us worthy to be your people. Lord, when we go from here in a few moments, let us go. We are sent to make disciples in your world. Father, bless us as we remember your sacrifice and your victory in this celebration moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.